Hey guys, welcome to the Crimson Coyote podcast. I am your host, Jesse Askenazi. The Crimson Coyote is a podcast that explores how personal and cultural wounds are mended through creative practices. I am sorry if today is a little more noisy than usual or a little more echoey than usual because I am not home um, and I don't have my studio set up. I'm recording from New York City uh, because I really needed a break and I needed an escape from the hellhole that is also known as Florida. So anyway, my guest today is Darren Thompson, and he's an educator, public speaker, journalist, and Native American flute player from the Lac du Flambeau Ojibwe Indian Reservation in northern Wisconsin. He spent most of his adult life serving communities through leadership development, American Indian cultural awareness workshops, and the arts. He shares both traditional American Indian flute songs as well as his original compositions at universities throughout the United States. His dedication to the preservation of American Indian music has taken him to some of North America's most prominent American Indian organizations and events, including the grand opening of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. In 2009, Darren released his debut album, The Song of Flower, Native American Songs from Ojibwe Country, and in 2015, he released his second album, Between Earth and Sky, Native American Flute Music Recorded in the Black Hills, for which he earned a nomination from the Native American Music Awards for Flutist of the Year in 2016. His music is highly acclaimed due to its technique and the preservation of history. He was awarded an artist-in-residence opportunity with the world's largest monument, the Crazy Horse National Memorial in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and he has since been selected to be a regular performer in the summer months at Crazy Horse. I found Darren's music because I was particularly looking for a Native American flute player because I had been listening to that music a lot to kind of calm me from all of the stress of the time that we're living in. And I came across his music, I think it was on Spotify, um, so you can find it there and also wherever music is streaming. But he is such a profound being, um, has so much heart and soul and you can hear it in his music and in the way he speaks about his culture. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. You just got back from a residency at the Crazy Horse Memorial in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of this memorial site and what your involvement with it has been? Sure. So real textbook response. It was started in 1948 by a lone carver who had an immense ambition to make the world's largest monument. And he... Uh, this man's name is Korshak. He basically just removed tons and tons and tons of rock before it could eventually be carved. And my involvement uh, began in 2015. And the story behind my involvement is pretty unique. Uh, we were 
when I say we, I mean me and a member of the organization, which is the Crazy Horse Memorial. We're at the same place at the same time and we exchange information and lo and behold, uh, that led to official establishments of relationships between me as an artist and the organization as a vendor. And the first experience I had was I applied for the artist in residence program they had, which I never, uh, prior to this application, I did not have a previous residence experience under my belt. So I was like, uh, I never really had one. I don't really think I should apply, blah, blah. And they just encouraged me to. And I was like, okay, sure enough, I'll do it. And then I was accepted. And during my tenure there, I had met thousands of people. And they had a filming of a television show that lasted one season on the History Channel, which was, I don't know the exact title, but it was a documentary featuring Ozzy Osbourne and his son, Jack Osbourne. And they came out to the Crazy Horse Memorial and hung out with me for an episode and I don't know it was pretty cool how was that was that fun yeah it was pretty fun are you an Aussie fan yeah before that I was a big Aussie fan so I was <laughs> like oh my god but you know I was able to I was able to hold it in I was able to play cool it together yep yep but I was like yes um and so that went so well and they recommended me for another program they had, which was the performance, local performance program. And so I did that and I ended up being needed for an additional capacity, which was I needed to be, I, I had to fill in for some spots. So for my first summer, I had performed like a little over 220 performances, which is wow. a lot. And so, yeah, so it went on and, um, so I took a couple of years off. Uh, I actually took one year off. My father passed away in 2018, uh, which was really unexpected and uh, required some, uh, required more than I could ever be prepared for. Emotionally? So, yeah, emotionally, uh, mentally, spiritually, definitely spiritually. And so I had to move closer to home to take care of some things with my family. I'm the oldest of five in my family, and I, we were all born and raised on the Lac de Flambeau Indian Reservation, which is in northern Wisconsin, which is a very, very beautiful place. And so uh, after that happened, uh, I took about a, close to a year off, and I had some inquiries throughout the year to provide my services and I don't know show up here and there and I respectfully said no to a lot of places but I did have one goal uh, that I had set 10 years earlier and that was one day I wanted to perform at the Smithsonian and in my year of mourning if you will I got uh, I got the message basically from the Smithsonian unsolicited and so that was like a telltale sign of I'm a, I'm on a path that I had set a long time ago yeah it's so, incredible yeah. I actually remember I read I think it was on your Instagram that when you finally did perform at the museum 
that you said you couldn't enjoy it the way you used to enjoy sharing your journey after your father's mm -hmm. passing. And so I wanted to know what it would have meant for you to have him there for that opportunity or to be a part of that, what, why you felt like you couldn't quite connect in the same way. Sure, sure. That's a really good question. I'm glad you're, you caught that. So when I got the inquiry from the Smithsonian, they wanted me to participate in a program called the Storytellers Program. And uh, I don't quite tell stories. I mean, I do. I get it. I'm confident enough to know that I tell stories uh, because prior to that, I would just consider myself a musician and I would talk about my music. But the reality is, is that any story that I am willing and able to tell comes from my dad, like every story. Every, and so I, I went there and it was a bittersweet opportunity. I was like, uh, I don't, okay, so back up a little bit. So the title of storyteller takes on a very serious role in our community. Um, you never proclaim yourself to be anything, let alone a title of prestige, if you will. And the title of a storyteller is super important because you are by default a storyteller or a historian. And so in order, you know, that, that entails a lot of other things, but essentially uh, not being able to share that experience with my dad uh, was, it was pretty tough because I knew that he would have been really proud of me and would have wanted to be there with me and uh, at least hear my excitement about what I'm doing, what I'm sharing, how people are reacting. And and since then, I've, I've taken a little bit more time in telling my stories. And even by, by way of t taking more time, that could even mean letting that those two or three second moments of silence as I'm telling the story to like let people process or even let myself process. And since I've done that, I've heard from so many people from the older generation um, who are significantly older than um, even my parents are telling me like they really enjoy my storytelling. Like, yeah, they enjoy my music, they enjoy my my art form, but they just really, really enjoy my storytelling. And yeah. Um, and so I think about that and I think like, you know what, storytelling is an art form that's passed on from the generations and the way that I tell stories or the way that I've seen other people tell stories. I have no other examples than the people that came before me uh, in, my, in my community, even though they may have been 25, 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. they still have been imprinted in my my identity as a as a man as a as a person yeah i remember actually you you writing about one of the first stories that you ever heard came from the elders in your community and they said trees sing to us and give us guidance so what was the significance of that story to your life cuz you kind of singled that one out so one it was one of the first stories that I ever remember hearing outside of my family. And so here's the thing about my family. 
we don't particularly tell stories. You know, for example, we don't have quote unquote story time. Mm-hmm. But we know that there are stories and stories exist in our identities. So how do we hear them? And so how we hear them are we hear them from people who come from outside of our family. We hear them and then we compare them. And then our family either, you know, tells a different version or confirms the version. And this first story that I heard was from an older woman who she had a cadence to it to the way that she told her stories and a softness to her voice that uh, demanded eloquence and attention and you know you're 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 lucky to be in the presence of this woman and I think a lot of kids I think a lot of people can remember those types of people in their upbringing Uh, regardless of their background or or wherever they're from. And so this such woman was that person. And she told the story of when we were kids, it used to take five to six people to connect hands to uh, surround one of our our pine trees. And now it only takes one or two. And so in the moment of that story, what she was explaining was uh, direct... uh, cultural loss like it was a it was a sadness and I didn't quite understand it at the time because uh, you know I was like five years old I remember her being sad when she told the story and there was a couple of things that stood out and one of those things that stood out was these trees used to sing for us and so when you're five you think sing you think voice and you think mm-hmm. voice you think like mouth right and so there are many different types of ways that um, we can hear song or we can hear music. And what she was referring to, I learned about 15 years later that uh, in her lifetime, she had experienced our community be stripped of its resources, even down to the last pine tree, which may not seem significant to people, but our philosophy is embedded in our language and our way of life and that we are connected to everything and violently taking all of the resources is uh, a very serious matter. And, you know, so fast forward, you know, when that story really came full circle for me was when I was an undergraduate student, I started listening to different types of music and, there was a particular type of music that really struck home, that really struck close to my heart. And it was uh, the music of Carlos Nakai, who is the famed Native American flute player, uh, the Navajo flute player. He's still alive. He has many, many accomplishments under his his belt as a, as a flute player. But when I started listening to his music, I started thinking about not only the story that I shared with you, but many other experiences I had from where I come from mm-hmm. and it brought up all of these different seeds I realized that were planted in me that as I'm listening to them I am wanting to know more about where I come from and the history of where I come from than about a particular chapter in a textbook 
Sure. And so I realize as I'm doing this that I am catching up on a couple of generations of historical trauma, of mm. of these different lessons and experiences our people have been going through. And when I say our people, I mean the family that I come from. And so coming and speaking from that perspective, I don't need to, you know, point out specifically that I'm from from this particular group of people or et cetera. No, this is my family. These are people that I'm related to that have experienced um, a great deal uh, in regards to practicing the rights that their ancestors, my ancestors, our ancestors have uh, ensured that their descendants would be able to practice uh, to distribute and share things like wealth and land and resources. And, and you know, it, it gets really personal and gets really, it gets really intense. So uh, from that experience, my musical career, if you want to call it that, has been, has been rooted and founded in a story that happened when I was five, which relates to uh, cultural trauma and then to experiencing what I experienced while I was an undergraduate, which was additional cultural trauma, which was my own personal trauma, in that when I met people, they had little to no knowledge of who I was and where I came from. And to me, that was a, a tremendous, that was a great affront. And the greatest affront was where I come from. I heard this story of this woman talking about her trees going missing. So that's where the very bare root of it starts. And, and then from then on, it's been a never ending learning experience for me and, and the content that I need to share and how I share this very raw, uh, real emotional existence to one being a human being but two living here in the United States the the great sacrifice that uh, our people have have made and have continued to give so that we can make America great again oh, God, a, no. a but I'm okay that was a nice touch. Um, okay, great. So, all right. So let's back up a little bit because you said you're from the Lac de Flambeau Ojibwe Indian Reservation in northern Wisconsin. Um, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. I tried. Okay. Yeah, um, you did. You all did. right. Yes. Okay. So what are some of the things that make this tribe unique and maybe some of the cultural practices that you treasure the most? Sure. So. Uh, a great transition into that is Lac du Flambeau is in its pronunciation, in its meaning, uh, defines on, on who we are and what we're known for. Lac du Flambeau translates from French to English uh, as Lake of the Torch or Torch Lake. In the Ojibwe language, we say Waswaganing. And what that refers to is when the French came down from Lake Superior around the year 1720, uh, they observed that there were people on the lakes at night with a torch at the tips of their canoes, mm -hmm. hence Lake of the Torches. And what they were doing long ago 
is a right that our people retained and still practice to this day. And that is we use lights on the lakes at night on our boats to harvest uh, walleye, which is a species of fish that particularly reflects the light as you shine the light towards the ground or towards the water, um, hence the term walleye. But um, their lights or their eyes flash like they're really, really bright. And so one of the things that makes us unique is that we, one, are descendants of those people that did that a long time ago. But uh, since we have signed the treaties in the 1830s and 40s, we have maintained this tremendous tradition of harvesting walleye by the use of a light and a spear at night. And that, that requires a lot of things. Uh, that requires that we maintain the relationship with the land. And, and so because of that, uh, we have, there, there are so many other responsibilities that this entails. And so what makes us unique is that we are one of the only tribes that can legally spearfish by light and the use with the use of a spear off of an Indian reservation out of the 576 tribes in the United States. Wow. So yeah, the harnessing of light is something that's kind of innate in your culture. That's so profound. So, so real uniquely, like fast forward a couple of generations uh, in the 1910s, 1920s, uh, after those trees were clear-cut, as I've mentioned earlier, there was a railroad track that was, you know, produced or made that went up to our community, and the main purpose of it was to export these logs or these trees to take them down to the city of Chicago, and the use of these, these tracks or after it was done it cleared these long pathways into the woods that had never been seen before and what our people were doing then is they were using vehicles like motor vehicles and lights to shine in the woods to see the reflection of these lights in deer eyes and so today our tribe is uh, still practices that not off the reservation but on the reservation so we are one of the very few tribes that maintains this. And that was created after, as you mentioned, the harnessing of lights. And I like that. <laughs> you know, know, it's my poetic side there. Yeah, I like, help it. I like that uh, description. <laughs> well, okay, so speaking about reservations, can you tell us, uh, mere uh, nouveau Americans, what the word reservation means by definition? You're understanding. Sure. So reservation implies that an American Indian tribe interacts with a formal government in this situation, the United States government, where they agree that there's going to be a land base and on within the land base and or the boundaries, uh, these groups of people who are wanting to have these boundaries reserve these specific rights 
where they have different sets of laws and the different sets of laws when people think law they think criminal law and that's not necessarily the case and although it's applicable the laws that we are referring to are the laws of commerce the laws of taxation the laws of governance and so when people are living in the reservation they are reserving the rights to govern themselves as opposed to being governed by people who for example may not live there mm -hmm. and so this is really important when you think about how a community uh, attains and distributes resources uh, so you think although there are very small communities a community of 2,000 people for example um, which may seem small it's a lot of people to distribute uh, all resources to food water electricity law enforcement uh, things like uh, let's say we have babies um, who's gonna get diapers uh, most people go to the to the stores uh, long ago our people used to share responsibility with babies and how they are cared for um, how they're prayed for um, you know all these different things are you know now we're, I'm getting muddled into all these other conversations but uh, essentially it's how do we maintain community? Uh, how important is community, especially in regards to healthcare? So healthcare is very protected. Uh, the challenges with healthcare, uh, our people have always believed that uh, things should be approached in, for, um, so from four directions or they should be well balanced. So those four directions or those, those four levels of existence are mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical. So speaking of like the government, what are some of the government assimilation policies that nearly killed off the Ojibwe language, culture, traditions? Sure. So the most recent act was mm -hmm. the American Indian Relocation Act, which was passed in 1948, I believe. And what that was, was an allocation of tax-funded dollars which were sent to the various Indian tribes at the time where they had funds to send families to different metropolitan slash urban communities and these urban communities are the cities of New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, I mean Phoenix, there's any big city you can think of. And so what, what it did and the purpose of it was to save money and the purpose of it saving money was, it was documented and well known that as money was sent to Indian reservations, it most often did not make it to the people that it was intended to serve, which were American Indian families. So as a result to, to kind of save face in regards to that, they sent families to cities to gain employment so that they could govern themselves, so to speak, so they could take care of their own families. And uh, that was really detrimental for a, a lot of families and a lot of people because they are there then for living in the city, especially if they obtain, obtain employment, if they obtain a place to live, uh, they are then raising families. Um, you know, I performed for many different American Indian communities 
in chapter homes and cities. And I hear from program managers saying, we are now three generations of families living off the reservation. So it's not one, not two, but three. And so what does land mean to identity in regards to our identity? And, you know, we can talk on and on about that. But um, when I hear this, these people saying this, we are three generations from living off of the reservation, I hear um, our relatives who don't have the experience that our ancestors had in regards to living off the land, in regards to you know, d really developing this relationship in, in a way with yourself, in a way with creation, the way that our, our people used to. And, you know, I'm still a pretty young man and I find myself at a great loss in the fact that I live in the city and not being able to spend as much time as I used to be able to spend in the forest or on the lake. And, you know, it's a great, like I mentioned earlier, it's a great sacrifice to have to leave um you know it's it's a it's a very difficult choice for lots and lots of families to um make a living to make a life is that life going to mean capitalism or is that life going to mean tribal or or familial and you know there was a very hard lesson that i had to learn one day and it was it wasn't long ago i want to say it was like two or three years ago well, two or three years ago, I had to I, I had to admit to myself that one day I will never be a successful white man. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> you know, and so like just think about that. And that's not a rip on them. It's not a rip no. on me. But it's, what does that mean to you? What does that mean for you? You know, I, I hear this um from friends I haven't talked to in five, ten years, fifteen years. And they say, I should have had a house by now. I should have my own business by now. And I'm like, why? Who, who said that you should have these things? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it all leads to commercially paid television material, mm -hmm. whether it's on a television show or advertisement. And yeah, those things are nice. Those are great. But there's a reason why some people have it and some people don't. And that doesn't mean that we should give up. I think that there are many beautiful things that are a part of being a person from an Ojibwe family or an Ojibwe community. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. Uh, this, you know, it is a very modern American ideal I don't know if you even want to call it the American dream but the whole you know you should have a house you should have these this sort of timeline that especially I think for artists do not connect with because it's a different path it looks different and there is a sacrifice when you are an artist or when you do live on the the fringes a little bit where you you kind of do reject the capitalist structures and institutions and oftentimes that that does mean you know your material life 
is is um, sacrificed in that way. Yeah. So you know, real personally, the way that I explain that situation is that anytime I'm able to share my art, whether or not it's free or paid, uh, it's a blessing. And so, furthermore, anytime I get paid anything, <laughs> whether that's a free meal or a ride or an honorarium, um, mm -hmm. there have been gracious offers. Uh, it is a really good day because it, the the experiences that I have been able to have have been worth beyond any dollar amount I mean it's yeah yeah the you know the, we're all people we're all grooving we're all having this type of energy yeah and so speaking of sacrifices because I feel like we've used that word a lot now um what are some of the sacrifices that your ancestors had to make uh especially like they were they weren't native to Wisconsin were they or were they native to Wisconsin or did they end up there because of you know yeah everything that happened sure so at the time of the treaty making period our people had already been living in Wisconsin for about six generations and so put that into perspective, I know that the tremendous sacrifice that people have had to make were in regards to people, land, and resources. And so the resources are both material and immaterial, but I know that there have been many battles that have existed and had happened, uh, not only in our community, but around our community where hundreds of people didn't make it. And, you know, these aren't things that you normally hear about in the classroom, uh, let alone in Wisconsin and, of course, beyond. But I know that the sacrifices that our people have made uh, were to the knowledge that we... So in regards to losing land, we lose the knowledge to the land. We, we lose the history that our people have a direct experience with and that loss is immeasurable. And so I made a post earlier and the post was in regards to um, the land that is being destroyed is stolen, but the land knows this. And so people don't realize how connected and how we are all related that what befalls earth befalls man and and i think that these are some definite warning times mm -hmm. uh, of what we're seeing and and what we're what we're having to endure like this is some really serious stuff and, i agree yeah uh yeah when you left the reservation and you went to Marquette University, you were talking about how there were no other Native kids there, and that was kind of a, a huge shift for you. And that's kind of the time when you started to play the flute. So what was that lack of representation like, and why was that like the catalyst for, you know, picking up this instrument? 
the catalyst for picking up the instrument was the immense misunderstanding and lack of knowledge that I had by my colleagues who were very elitist, who were very arrogant, who were very privileged uh, in regards to their way of life. And I thought, um, great that people feel this way, but there's so much that they didn't know. And so the catalyst behind that was mainly education was that I didn't want to ram it down people's throats, but I wanted people to learn in a way that where I come from not only contributed to the well-being of me and my family, and not only the people who lived around us, in other words, our neighbors, but in regards to like, even y'all living hundreds of miles away, like we're all part of this whole fabric of America, like what you know and experience, like, and I hate to say it this way, but like the city that you've known to grow and prosper off of, even if you haven't, which you have, uh, was built by resources that were stolen from where I come from. Uh, literally, like people don't realize this, but think Civil War, you know, that was tens, hundreds of thousands of people. How did they eat? What did they eat? Of course, you know, that we can, we can look up all these things. And so there were great sacrifices by many producers of food. And so as a result of those sacrifices, you couldn't go out to restaurants and order beef from restaurants. So what did you order? You ordered venison. And we have these documents and these records from our community where our people came down and brought tons of venison so that people can live and can continue to eat. And, you know, these, these, these minor things of food, shelter, and security people take for granted. And there's lots of reasons why, but ultimately my catalyst was to allow us to have a seat at the table and not only have a seat, but to have a voice at the table. And, you know, like being 19, being a sponge and wanting to learn about others, why aren't people learning about us? And so I'm still answering that question to this day, but essentially it's, there is so much more to this world than what we're being forced to believe. Yeah. That was that was basically my my response to it all. And so, mind you, at the time, uh, I was going to a, a Jesuit school, and they were dealing with an identity crisis. And what I mean by that is. They tried to reintroduce the use of a, an American Indian name and mascot. So they retired it in 94 and thought it was a good idea to bring it back. And so I remember hearing from kids like, I've never even met a Native person. And so that's moving forward to this day, even my last experience at Crazy Horse, like, I am still meeting people who have never met or heard a native person talk mm -hmm. in like ever. Mm -hmm. You know what's funny? I've, I've met people who have never talked to a Jewish person, which I think is yeah. so weird too. Yeah. Um, it is. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing that I thought was really cool is you spent time studying some of the traditional instruments that were seized 200 years ago. And you told me um, they were traded to museum collections in exchange for food. So what is one thing that you learned while studying these instruments at museums that really stood out to you? Sure. So one thing I learned you alluded to in the question, and that was that many of these items in the time period they were collected were collected from Indian agents. And so what an Indian agent was then is different than what an Indian agent is now. And back then, primarily, what an Indian agent did was maintain the morale of the early reservation days but to also keep a tally on people because if they kept a tally on people, so in other words, they counted how many people they took the population numbers, uh, they were then therefore responsible for ordering and distributing resources. And these resources were in the form of food and clothing. And so I think that the main difference, of course, between the two is the role then was really a role of manipulation to now. And I think that back then, according to many of these old documents, what people did to maintain their culture was often def considered defiant in regards to what an Indian agent required, which was you go to church, you give up your old ways, you start speaking English, and if you don't, you will be punished for it. Punished to the point of you will lose a little of your culture bit by bit, and we'll make sure of that. So many of, you know, and I say this in some of my performances, that when you see our stuff, when you see, when I say our stuff, when you see Native stuff in museums on display, throughout the United States, you're seeing genocide on display. How were these items collected? How, how did they get into the public domain? And so a flip side to that question or that scenario is that an act was passed in 1990 called NAGPRA or the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, which allowed us to repatriate human remains and items of significant cultural value to our people and what is considered significant cultural value varies of course from tribe to tribe and person to person but essentially what we're referring to in regards to the instruments that i studied were items that were taken from a time of tremendous cultural loss and so Speaking to that in regards to me personally, I'm a self-taught musician and maker. And the reason I'm self-taught is that there were a couple of generations where people weren't practicing these things mm. uh, because they went underground and just never returned. Wow. Yeah, of course, I had no idea. And in talking about cultural genocide, what does the role of cultural genocide and cultural revitalization play in your, in your music, in your work? Sure. So in my music and work, I would say they both play a, a role in addressing cultural loss and genocide. 
and on the flip side cultural revitalization so it's a story that needs to be told and then the story of hope the story of hey we're able to put it aside I'm, I'm not here to shame you or to make you feel guilty i'm here to let you know that um these things that come from our past inspire me and they move me to the point of making these efforts making these sacrifices so that we can learn uh the history of 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 course my people but of of where we came because just like that we're we're a hundred years forward just like that you know we're now dealing with the issues that our society is dealing with. Tell me about the first flute that you owned and how you came upon it. The first flute that I owned was a small cedar flute. I was attending a festival called the Indian Summer Festival, which is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's no longer a thing. Uh, rest in peace, Indian Summer. It was a great, great event. Uh, it was once coined America's largest American Indian cultural festival uh blah blah they had lots of vendors who did lots of cool things and this one guy had a bunch of flutes on display and at this time i was just starting to listen to flute music mm -hmm. and i just kept walking by the stand and this guy was like hey come visit with me for a little bit and i'm one of those people that can't really say no to a salesman <laughs> so he like walked me right into the sale and I was like, sure, yeah, I'll get one and <laughs> slowly taught myself over the next year or so. Can you describe the construction of the instrument, uh, the, the, the Native American flute in general? Sure, sure. So let me let me grab one of my flutes real okay. quick. I'll, sh I'll show you. So the instrument here. This is about an average size instrument. There are six holes on it mm -hmm. on the top. Um, that's the foot. That's the bottom of the flute. Uh, this is the mouthpiece right here. Um, what is considered a Native American flute or style flute is this piece that's fastened or tied to the top of the instrument. Uh, what's going on is I blow into the piece right here like this. Um, my breath travels through and goes upward and hits the bottom of this piece and is pushed forward through this piece right oh cool yeah here and so these make various noises but so the spacing of these pieces here is about my thumb mm -hmm. um, right here, mm -hmm. which is also the same spacing as the inside of the instrument. And then the spacing between the bottom to this part, mm -hmm. so right here, is the same spacing as the high note to this hole here. And then again, there's another hole that's under here and it's the same spacing. What so is here. the what, what in the instrument gives that kind of like vibrato or wavering effect? That's actually me. Oh. Well, so I, I notice it. I notice it with the Native American flute. I think more so than other types of flutes. There's a couple of reasons why. One, it's the construction. Mm -hmm. So technically, if you listen really, really closely, and you can't hear it while I'm playing it on here, but mm -hmm. as I blow into the instrument. 
Did you hear that, how it trailed off? Mm -hmm. What's going on is as I blow, after I stop, my breath is still traveling through. The oh, instrument. that's what I think I love and, about it so much. <laughs> and so what's going on is I can blow like in waves or like I can go, and this is like a silly example, but like you refer to Santa Claus and you go, ho, 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 but you don't say it. You just go, Mm -hmm. and so that's what the noise is and it actually helps me hold the note longer so if I go I actually am blowing like constantly like so what it does is it allows me to to save some of my breath and oh, just make okay. it and so the second the second reason is is the song style um, so when you study indigenous music, particularly here in North America, you will learn that there's a lot of vibe. Well, obviously you and I talking, there's nothing but vibrating going on, mm -hmm. but the way that we sing is we hold this vibrato note often. And so speaking to that, our original musical instrument has always been our voice. Mm -hmm. And so, oh. you know, it's, it's preferred. It's, it's what... It's what people want to hear. And yeah. that is what is unique about the instrument is one, because of the way it's made, it's able to do that differently, but also because of the way that the music is made too. Oh, that's so fascinating. Cause I've noticed that whenever I listen to your albums or other just Native American flute music, which I think is so beautiful, that, that trailing quality, it's like looping yeah. days with you. I love that so much. Nice. Uh, why was it important for you to share both traditional American Indian flute songs as well as original compositions on your albums and performances? Sure. Uh, ultimately, I would like people to experience, enjoy the voice and craftsmanship of Native American flutes, both in the construction as well as the performance of the instrument. And because it's unique, because of the way that it's made, uh, the original compositions or the newer compositions and the newer instruments, uh, they're particularly tuned to minor scales. And so they can be played with other instruments, for example. And um, my goal as, an, as a musician is to blend mm -hmm. more with other, other instruments. So my, my new album actually is starting to do that. And... So my fourth album, I'll be recording with a couple of strings, a cello mm -hmm. and a violin. Oh, cool. um, and the musicians are actually my sons. They're 14 years old. What? So Yeah. So they have surpassed <laughs> my musical abilities. Wow. Okay. That's so, that's yeah. incredible. I can't wait for that. Um, what about like the performing live aspect? How does, how does performing live and these, especially like the more traditional songs help you reconcile injustices made against your community and like create new meaning in the moment? Good question. Essentially it's to put out into the universe, especially to the audience that these songs were so pure in their intent. Uh, so mm. let's get beyond the intent. 
but, but so pure in their composition and in their energy that I want to get people to acknowledge the, the preparate or presentation of the song and then to actually acknowledge and feel the energy to like, not only do I dig the story of the song, but this sounds nice too. And there's something going on. And essentially it's a telling, I'm, I'm trying to tell as well-rounded of a story as possible so that I don't have to deal with, so are you Native American? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, or so, you, you know what I mean? Like, like these questions. So like, I, I try to do all of these in this, in this storytellers or like collaged approach so people can have all their questions answered before they bombard <laughs> before they come to you yeah 30 of them yeah because it's gonna happen and the most commonly asked question and asked is or responses i'm a 64th cherokee indian and so i you know and i don't say anything to these types of things i'm just like oh okay cool <laughs> or they're like i awesome. did a 23 and me and i am three <laughs> percent and so but you'll hear other white folk in the background and they'll laugh at her and they'll uh, yeah this person for sure how do you get that on the slice of pie like i don't get it like (laughs) how are you gonna you know and it's 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 in a way it's almost like they would say things i would never say to people because you know i don't want to offend anybody i don't but mind you i'm getting all the offensive questions exactly yeah uh, you know like so did you grow up in a teepee or no. I'm like, no, I grew up in a wigwam. Walk, walk, walk. Okay, wait. So, but the, I also want to talk about the healing nature of the flute, which I, by the way, I've been listening to your albums, like to just get through this uh, distressing nice. period, but, but the healing nature of the flute has enabled you to serve communities as a music therapist as well. What has that experience been like? The instrument has a lot of spiritual abilities and these abilities uh, we hear in stories of how they, how the instrument came to us. And in some of the ways that I've shared the instrument with people is definitely been in ceremonies. So the ceremonies range from wedding ceremonies which are beautiful ceremonies no matter who is getting married i think and uh to funerals uh and lots of other ways in between and so as a music therapist i serve as a music therapist where i would go to different patients and i would play for them as they often were alone and the best way that i could do so was I would play to the beat of their heart and so that's usually a two count so one two one two one two um and I could play a quick song or make a quick beat into that and now when you say a patient do you mean in a medical setting yeah in a hospital um usually in a hospice situation oh and I I developed a lot of really close relationships with a lot of families um Wow. Of, of all colors, uh, just because I was able to 
you know, visit them in their last moments and, and yeah. not have to shove religion or spirituality, just hey, I'm here playing some music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know so and you know there's there's no closer bond than than that i think yeah in being able remember to share that the rest of a their very in, yeah very intimate moment with with a lot of families and you know moving you know from these experiences i hear from families like when it's my turn time to go or you know this is how i want to go like i want you to be there for me when i pass and it's like mm-hmm. um I don't really want to be thinking about that kind of stuff, you know, like, sure. so, you know, and I'm still just, le- I'm learning as I go too, you know, like, I don't know how I'm supposed to behave. I don't know what I'm supposed to do other than just take it as I go. And well, you're like being, you're serving as like a channel, you know, it's like, it's just, it's a channel yeah. between, which is really incredible. Yeah. Um, something I really wanted to talk about, which was very important to me with this interview or conversation is that your music and educational work has taken you to various activist sites, one of which being the protests against the North Dakota Access Pipeline uh, that the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe would be affected by. Can you offer a little bit of background on the issue and why these demonstrations were one of the largest gatherings of tribes in US history? Sure, great question. I was born and raised in northern Wisconsin in the late 80s. And I remember when I was a kid, uh, our tribal members started to practice their treaty rights for the first time in 80 plus years. And as a result of them practicing these treaty rights, there was a, a violent uproar by non-tribal members in the local neighboring towns which were all white and when you're five six years old and you know nothing but your family which is love and you deal with these situations where your neighbors who don't know you or your family or what you're about are upset and angry and being prejudiced towards your family and your people, it brings uh, some trauma. And the trauma is, um, you know that you are treated differently because of where you come from, because of, uh, of your traditions, because of your family. And I remember hearing the things that my family had gone through and I remembered feeling very angry and very sad and very confused. And so fast forward, that's an experience that has shaped my life and that experience is um, relating to oppression. And the oppression that we're referring to is the oppression of rights. And these rights that I'm referring to are rights that were retained based upon law, uh, which established this country, which allows this country to exist. Uh, so that we also could maintain a certain set of laws. And when the Dakota Access Pipeline was built, the, one of the early arguments that I remember hearing was, why would a country set their own laws if they're not going to follow them? And it was in regards to um, the Clean Water Act and regards to Indian treaties and 
uh, in regards to this uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. And at the time, I was living in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is about a four-hour drive away from Standing Rock. And I was traveling to and from there at the time. And um, I had some really close friends that had lived up there. And their family members were a big part of this. And so I understood it from that point of view, from that family point of view, because I remember what it meant, what it felt like to have your family believe in what they believe. And the belief isn't bigotry. The belief isn't um, we're more privileged or we deserve this. It's not entitlement. It's what is fair. It is, it is something that we have all collectively discussed, agreed upon, ratified, and moved forward with. And so my music and what I strive for uh, and how my music got involved was the first day that I went there, I'd seen some friends who were uh, particularly organizers and they were like, we really need some of your music with this. Can you play for us? And so I played and then I got a lot of really positive comments and People kept asking me to come back, and so that turned into a really significant role that I played in regards to organizing, and I was involved um, in, in my media. And so when I was there, we organized this text donate campaign through a concert that I had organized, and we raised, I'm sorry, we raised $3.1 million. Ultimately, I kept going because I seen people that I knew that if they were my family, I would be concerned as well. And so as a result of that, um, it had equipped me with a tremendous amount of experience, resources, and connections that I had made um, in my travels up there, and I still organize and still do uh, many events throughout the country as a result of, of that experience. For those who aren't familiar, just really briefly, could you explain what the, um, the conflict was there about the pipeline? Sure. So uh, one of the infrastructure projects that our generation is currently dealing with, and kind of the last generation is the building of underground oil pipelines, which eliminates truckers and trains from transporting the raw resource of crude oil from location to location. And with domestic oil production being desired, there are many drill sites who are extracting oil from various rural communities, particularly in the Dakotas now. And part of Montana where they take as much as they can by the way of blasting uh, as far deep as a mile, sometimes a mile and a half under uh, the surface where they push things around through water pressure and it loosens crude oil from very far below. And as a result of that, you have a lot of waste product and that waste product is contaminated water, which also contaminates the underground water supply, which is a significant part of the water supply that we as human beings need and consume. And so the issue was the oil, uh, there was an oil pipeline that would start from North Dakota called the Dakota Access Pipeline that would travel 
1,172 miles from there to a town in Illinois, which would cross under one of the largest river systems in the world, which is the Missouri River, a mile north of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And in order to get the permission to cross under a waterway, there needs to be an environmental impact statement done. And these particular environmental impact statements take years to complete. And the tribe, uh, the tribe in the situation was the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, uh, was voicing that this company, which was called the Energy Transfers uh, LLC, did not obtain the correct permit to travel under the water. And as a result of that, they felt at a, uh, the, the issue, or they felt particularly vulnerable were that if there was an oil spill, uh, our community would be the first community that would be affected by this. And uh, they made a call to the public that we didn't get permission for this. We weren't involved in this decision to build this underwater oil pipeline here. And they called in the largest protest camp in United States history. At one point, there were well over 15,000 people camped out in a small encampment uh, just north of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. Now, didn't there, didn't this also um, veer on like territory of something like 86 burial sites? Like that was part of- Okay, yeah, good point, good point. So that was another argument. One of the other arguments was that the path of the oil pipeline uh, was intending to go through went under nearly 100 burial sites of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. And so they weren't quote unquote marked, but when the people know, the people know, and of course uh, no one believed them. And so I used to actually work in the Department of Transportation in the state of Wisconsin. And one of the early lessons I learned from that experience was when you're digging up the earth and you dig up human bodies, 100% those bodies are ours. And so what happens then? Normally what happens is they dig another spot and they put those bodies there. There's no protocol, that's the protocol. And so that was witnessed in that particular situation where these bodies were dug up and they were just placed somewhere else. And so that was actually another purpose and reason for the call for support and help was that the mm -hmm. tribe was aware that this pipeline was going across under these old burial sites. It's unbelievable to hear, to read. On your blog, you wrote, I, I, I wrote down this excerpt. You wrote, what I saw that day will remain in my memory for as long as I live. A company digging up burial sites with no regard for law, for a people or their history, and having to feel the energy of all of that was very life-changing. So how was feeling that energy transformative to you at that time and like what you wanted to continue to do with your work? So I knew that I was on a path that I was doing the right thing in my work because it had led me there regardless of what accomplishments I had with my music or with my journalism I knew that whatever it was it led me to there to be 
a witness for the people in losing another aspect of their history. And so a lot of people don't realize this or take the time to know it, but this wasn't the first time the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe had dealt with the Army Corps of Engineer and a faulty permit. So there was another community that was flooded by damming upriver where the descendants of the people of someone you might have heard of named Sitting Bull mm -hmm. and other chiefs and leaders of, the, of that particular tribe had lived in for many generations, for well, for at least 20, 30 years. In the 1950s is when this particular community was, was flooded. And as a result of that, um, there were people that were still alive that remember this and it brought it up. This isn't the first time they did what they wanted to do. And so when I had heard and felt the things that people were saying, I knew that this was a people's memory, that this, was, this wasn't for media attention. This wasn't for, we were trying to make ourselves victims. This is, mm. can you just leave us alone already? Can mm -hmm. you just let us live in peace and the very minuscule land that you left us with? Mm -hmm. because the amount of land that they originally agreed to was huge. It included North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana. And so when you look at those types of things, when you, took at, when you, when you look at the loss of, of, of land, that's, that's an issue. You look at the loss of your food source and your access to your food source. You look at the loss of your culture and your cultural leaders, you know, the people like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, they were killed by police. People don't realize that. They were, they were murdered. By, they were murdered. They weren't just in a gun shootout. They were killed and shot in the back or stabbed in the back and died from their wounds on site. And so when you look at those types of things, you look at all these examples, it's like, when is it ever going to end? And so you multiply this and you add social media and you add cell phone cameras and all of this to it. And then now that's why, in my opinion, mm -hmm. that movement and what had happened was so big was oh, because yeah, I of agree. the ability of social media. You know, and then in con to conclude this conversation, you said that the stories in your songs don't just speak to what was lost, but what has survived. So what has survived? Well, what has survived is we do have our knowledge. We are aware of our history. Uh, there might have been some stop gaps, and that's exactly what they are, stop gaps. And so we're able to retain what we have left, and we're able to build a movement, which we're currently in, and there is definite hope for, for our families and for, and for our people. Thanks so much for tuning into the Crimson Coyote. Be sure to listen, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow me on Instagram at Crimson Coyote Pod and visit thecrimsoncoyote.com for more details. <laughs>